Please open your Bibles with me. We're going to take a break from Galatians this evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms will be in book 5 of the Psalter. We'll be looking primarily at Psalm 121 this evening. The book of Psalms, Psalm 121, and the title of the sermon this evening is The Lord is My Shield. The Lord is My Shield. And once you find your places in your Bibles, everyone, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture, just like they did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Psalm 121, the Lord is my shield. This is the word of God, church, starting here in this song of ascent in Psalm 121. The psalmist writes in verse 1 saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God, church. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Lord, it's a gift to be able to gather in your name and just to be able to sing songs of praise of what you have done on the cross for us, King Jesus, and to be able to come together as the body to pray together. And God, just to sit at your feet, Lord, to hear your word preached. I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight to help them, Lord, just to have the ears to listen to what you need to tell them today, Lord, how they can be fed through your word, whether it be encouragement, discipline, or whatever, Lord. I pray that ultimately it would help them Shape them, Lord, to become followers of you, King Jesus, to become more in your likeness. If there's anyone here or anyone joining us online who doesn't believe in you, Lord, I pray that they walk away, Lord, knowing that they just heard the word of God and that they'll be convicted in their hearts, Lord, about the gospel and come to faith in you and and experience the new life that can only be found um, when they follow you, King Jesus. And so, Lord, we just pray for that individual. If anyone like that is here today, we thank you that they're here. And for myself, Lord, I just pray that, God, please fill me with your spirit. I'm, I'm a weak man. I am a sinner. Um, like my brothers and sisters here and the rest of humanity. And so, Lord, it's not by my strength that I'm able to preach, but by your spirit in me. And so, Lord, help me to do so, Lord, so that God is your word going to your people, so that, Lord, it feeds them, it nourishes them, and that ultimately, Lord, your church is, is built up more in, in, into the image of your son, Jesus. And, God, we're just expanding your kingdom here on earth, all to your glory alone. God, we thank you for this time. We just lift up all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see the church. If you recall, back in April of 2023, a Jewish rabbi named Harold S. Kushner died at the old age of 88. And not only was he one of the most influential rabbis in the United States, but he's best known for a book that he published, and it's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Perhaps you heard of it. Although it contains his reflections regarding the death of his son, it ultimately wrestles with an old philosophical conundrum. How can God... Be both all good and all powerful in a world filled with evil. Something that people have been talking about for many years now. And according to his book, he answers, It becomes much easier to take God seriously as the source of all moral values if we don't hold him responsible for all the unfair things that happen in the world. In other words, Kushner claims that God is not responsible for all the evil in the universe because he is not all-powerful. Although he would say he is good, he's a good God, he is just as helpless as humans to eliminate the suffering in the world. He is not responsible for it, 
But again, he cannot do anything about it. And as a result, Kushner says, personally, I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die for whatever exalted reason. And yet, even with that claim, can such a God really sympathize with our suffering? Is such a God at this point worthy of our worship? Does such a God even exist? And many in our secular culture could care less whether God exists or not. Nevertheless, human beings um, intuitively know that the world is broken. It's broken because of sin. We experience it daily to the point that humanity does whatever necessary to alleviate it. And for many in our culture, it means finding that best education, that career, that partner, or trying to find an identity or or community that matches us through truth. Or for Kushner, it's believing in an an all-good God who's all-powerful. And yet, as Christians, we believe in a God, right? We believe in a God who is all-good and all-powerful. He alone is the transcendental standard of all truth, morality, and even reality itself. He is indeed the trying creator God of everything. For, and just to, to kind of emphasize this, after suffering greatly, Job, right, that, that, that great man of faith in the Bible, Job, he finds comfort in these realities that God is ultimately in control. He says in Job 42.2 that, I know that you, O God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And what that means is that it doesn't mean that we're going to fully know why God permits evil and suffering. That's beyond us. Yet it does mean that God does have a justifiable reason for it in the first place. And I'm going to return to this matter later on tonight for, a bo- for it's a concern really for people in the culture, but also for us as Christians. In the meantime, loved ones, how can you find comfort in a world filled with great evil and suffering? And if there is any unbelievers here today, we're glad you're here How can you find security, the security that only Christians can forever have, this idea of joy, peace, that's found in the gospel? It's with these questions in mind that we arrive at the primary subject of our text, that God protects his people. God protects his people. And since Psalm 121 is a psalm about trust, it's going to teach you four truths For truth about God protecting his people, how he is indeed your shield forever. And so let's turn to the first truth tonight, which is God assists his people. God assists his people. And so look at your Bibles, loved ones, starting in Psalm 121, verse 1. He begins the psalm by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And so in this first stanza, this first section of Psalm 121, It basically says that God assists his people. God is the help of his people. And to really understand this truth, you must first consider the context of Psalm 121 here in our text. If you were to look at the previous passage, Psalm 120, it teaches you that you are to trust God right now. You are to trust God right now in your life. Why? Because for the Christian, you and I, we are not yet home in heaven. Also, Psalm 120 is actually the beginning of a section in the book of Psalms known as the Psalm of Ascents, which starts at Psalm 120 and ends all the way to Psalm 134. And what what this consists of is a collection of psalms. These are a collection of psalms that Jews would sing during their pilgrimages to Jerusalem for various festivals throughout the year. And the reason why these psalms are so important for us to study today is that they reminded the Jews 
And they remind us tonight, loved ones, to not live for this present evil age. Instead, they and us tonight, we are to long for our return home to be with God in the new Jerusalem, in the city of God, in the new heavens and new earth. And so as Christian pilgrims walking in the wilderness of this world, loved ones, we are to keep our eyes. We are to keep our gaze on the world to come. We must keep our sight upon Jesus by faith, for he will return to recreate this world. And yet, even with that beautiful hope in mind, there is a primary concern that the Jewish pilgrims would have thought in the past, and perhaps Christian pilgrims today, you and I, are thinking right now. How about protection, right? Because we live in a crazy world. We live in a world that, you know, we live in a fallen world. There's all these different obstacles that are trying to steer us off course. And so how can we know that, we, that the journey that we began, that God started our Christian walk, how can we be assured that we're going to make it to the end? And this is the question that the psalm, this, this psalm ultimately wants to answer. And so look at, so look at again, the first two, um, or, or with that in mind, I quote Psalm 120, verses 1 to 2, how it begins this section in the book of Psalms. It says here that, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. So again, how can we be confident that we will reach our final destination of heaven, to be with Jesus one day? And although the answer is alluded to in Psalm 120, in our passage tonight, it's actually realized here in Psalm 121. The psalmist's cry for deliverance in Psalm 120 is actually answered here in Psalm 121. And as Psalm 121, the first two verses teaches, truly God is the help of his people as their creator. And so look again at, the, at verse 1 of Psalm 121, but look at the first phrase. Look at how it begins. The psalmist writes these words that I lift up my eyes to the hills. What does he mean by that? What hills? Well, in the Hebrew, the word for hills it's also another reference to mountains. And that is going to be a clue why the psalmist even looks up to the hills in the first place. Because in ancient Near Eastern culture, mountains served as a metaphor, a metaphor for the divine realm. In other words, this is where gods dwell. This is where they believe gods to be at, in these mountains. And if you're like, John, I'm not following you, just think about these, these examples. One most popular one that many of us know is Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus is where the Greek gods dwell and chill, chill up there, right? Or if you go to ancient Near Eastern culture, you got another mountain called Mount Hermon, right? Mount Hermon. That's the Canaanite pantheon. That's where all the gods that they believed were there up on top of that mountain. And yet, you might be thinking about that. Well, what's the big deal about that? Where does all this even originate in the first place? And what a lot of scholars would say is like, well, it's this idea known as original monotheism. And what that basically teaches is that when you look at every culture around the world, not only is there going to be a connection to their deities being involved, living on top of mountains, but ultimately with, within that group of gods, whether they believe in one god or many gods, every culture around the world throughout history ultimately believes in one ultimate deity or this ultimate sky god. And that's something that you see across cultures throughout history. And yet that begs another question, where does that idea come from? And what's interesting about the Bible is that the Bible gives us the answer that there is no many different gods or just one generic God. No, the Bible tells us that there is one God and, he, and, and his name is Yahweh as revealed in the scriptures. If you're to look at the opening passages of the Bible, we see where God dwells with man in the Garden of Eden. And when you look at the details very closely, you realize it's not just a garden that God created to, to be with man, the first humans, 
but it's actually a garden mountain. And if you're like, John, I'm not sure if I'm following you, just go read Genesis chapter 2. And there's just some of the details of like, you know, the, the four rivers that's mentioned in that book and how they start in one source and kind of branch out. That's referring to a mountain right there. And what's interesting is that when you read throughout the Bible, you see these imagery of a mountain, Mount Sinai or, or Mount Zion where Jerusalem was. All these different mountain imagery all throughout the Bible, all that said Every culture has an idea that the, that, that the divine reality sits on top of a mountain and that, that vision ultimately roots back in God, that he was in the original garden mountain of Eden. And, that is, and, and the reason why people know about that, because the first humans were there with God before they got banished and were kicked out because of sin, right? But to kind of paint the picture why the psalmist even looks up to the hills, I'm going to read Psalm 87, verses 1 to 3, to kind of indicate this idea of, of this mountain imagery throughout the Bible. Look at what the psalmist says here in 87, verses 1 to 3. He writes, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. And so he's describing Jerusalem, the city of God, as a mountain where God dwells, which we know that's where the temple was. That's where Israel went to go and worship him. And so what this means then is that the psalmist He could have been looking at the city of Jerusalem, which was on a mountain, or during his pilgrimage, or just maybe the mountains leading up to it, right? And I can say personally, I've been to Jerusalem, and when you go to Jerusalem, it is on the highest place in all of Israel, and it does lead up all these different hills building on top of each other until, behold, you see the city of Jerusalem. Either way, what the psalmist is telling us is that when he looks up on these mountains, he is reminded, where does his help come from? It, is, it comes from the one who is above these mountains, the one who made these mountains. And, and look at what he says at the end of verse 1 in light of that. He, said, he asks, from where does my help come? And that word for help here, it refers to someone who's providing the needs of another person. So, whatever, so the psalm asks for help, he is looking to someone for his help. And when it comes to needs in the world, right, to ask for help, there's generally two. You got the physical needs and you got spiritual needs. And this is important, right? Because everyone experiences various physical needs throughout this fallen world. Reasons for us to ask help, right? Whether it be maybe health, finances, relationships, um, issues regarding justice or just the daily necessities. And yet we know that humanity's ultimate need and most significant need is spiritual. Their need to be born again. Our need to have a restored relationship with the God who made you and me. And yet, why does the psalmist ask this question? Because remember, we are not yet home. We are not yet home with God in the recreated universe. We still live in a fallen world, a world filled with pain and sorrow, a world filled with war and death, rumors of war for that matter of fact, a world filled with brokenness and sin, a world that will never satisfy your deep longings for peace, joy, and rest in this life. And so with that in mind, we all need help. Like the psalmist he's doing here, he's crying for help. We all cry for help because at the end of the day, we all need help to find our way through this fallen world. Many in our culture particularly turn inward as expressive individuals to find meaning and purpose to kind of alleviate this need for help. This is really the cultural creed of secular America. As long as they are true to themselves, right, they, um, that they follow their truth, they speak their truth, they live out their truth, they will satisfy, supposedly, their deepest longings in life. Longings for love, justice, acceptance, approval, meaning, and purpose, which are all great things, right? 
Yet the only problem is that when people find, try to find these things in this world itself, it only leads to more brokenness and emptiness. Why? Because our culture looks for, for things, they, they look ultimately for their hope in the things of man in this world rather than in God. That's the problem here. As one British apologist observes, um, Rebecca McLaughlin, she, she says that, it, that this idea of finding help in the world, what our culture does every single day, it centers not on God, but on diversity, ideas of equality, and everybody's right to be themselves. And again, those are not bad things in themselves. Diversity, equality, individualism, they're not necessarily bad. Put it in their proper order, they're actually necessary goods. For example... Only the gospel of Christ brings people from all nations together as one family in him. This unity of diverse people groups in Christ. That's why I always say that, yes, Christianity is the most exclusive religion because Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. And yet, even in light of that, that message of the gospel, it's the most inclusive message because it is an invitation to people from all the nations who would repent and believe in Jesus. It's only the gospel of Christ that affirms, for example, that all lives matter because everyone is made in God's image. As it says in Genesis 1.27, it says, For God has created, or he made man in his image. In the image of God, he made him male and female, biologically, right? He made them. And that's why a couple years ago, when this was a big thing on the news, like Black Lives Matter, I personally didn't have, a, I didn't have an issue saying like, yes, Black Lives Matter, but you know Why? Not because you say so in yourself or some people are saying it, because God says black lives matter. Because as Christians, it's the gospel that gives us the ground to even say that black lives matter, because all lives matter at the end of the day. It's only the gospel of Christ that affirms that all people are unique individuals, that we do have dignity, that we do have value, that we do have worth. As C.S. Lewis once says, that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. A thousand years from now, we're all going to be somewhere either in heaven, if you believe in Christ, or in hell, if you don't believe in him. And so with all this in mind, the solution for help that our, that, that our society longs for in so many different things, it is only found in God. It's only found in the gospel of Christ, not in the things in the world, not in people in themselves. This is why the psalmist looks to the hills, because he realizes like the God who has made the hills, the God who dwells on Mount Zion, he is the only place, the only person I can find my help in. And therefore, he prays to the God of these mountains, the God of the universe. And so before we can move on then, loved ones, there's a couple honest questions we need to ask ourselves as we continue through the psalm together. Like the psalm, psalmist that he's doing here, where does your help come from? Where do you honestly look for help? From the world that can never truly give you help? Or upon Christ, who is truly our help in every time of need? For the psalmist, he gives us his answer in the very next verse. And so look at Psalm 121, verse 2. He says, My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And so the psalmist's help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. In other words, God is Lord over creation. God is the creator, as the beginning of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth, the entire cosmos, the entire universe. Everything in creation, as we know from the Bible, is contingent upon God for his existence. But when we talk about God, right, God's essence is his existence, and his existence is his essence. He doesn't depend upon anything outside of himself for life. 
He depends upon himself because he is life in himself. And so God is the creator of the cosmos. Everything else is his creation. And so what better place then can the psalmist look for help in the world than the one who made it? It's really foolish to look for something in the world for help, including humanity. And so rather than trust in anything in creation, ultimately, the psalmist places his trust in the one who can truly help him, the triune God of the universe. Only then can he personally find confidence and comfort through his pilgrimage in the wilderness of this world. And it's with that example for us, loved ones, from the Bible, that we must remember that your only help in this life only comes from the God above. The one who made the mountains that we see over here, the one who's made everything in the cosmos, the one who has life in himself, he is the one that we are created to to long for, but ultimately to depend upon for everything because he is the reason why we even exist in the first place. And not only that, loved ones, but God is the one who protects you. Trust in him as a result, therefore, and he will help you live. He will help you live and guide you in light of the world to come. That's why we should depend upon him for everything. As an earlier psalm says in Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26, the psalmist says here, in light of this, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The things of this world will fail you, ultimately, because they're temporal, they're fading away, they just won't last. But God, he will never fail because he ultimately satisfies at the end of the day. You will never grow tired if you depend upon God's strength because he is the one that we're called to depend upon ultimately every single day. But that then begs the question, how does the Lord help us? It's one thing to cry out to him in prayer and to depend upon him, but how does the Lord actually do that? How does he actually give us help And it's with this question that the psalmist begins developing an answer in the second truth about God protecting his people, which is this, that God is awake to keep his people. He is awake to keep his people. So look at Psalm 121, verse 3 in your Bibles. He continues, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And so now we see in the second stanza, the second part of Psalm 121, that God is awake to keep his people. In other words, God never falls asleep when protecting you and I as his people. And yet, how does that that teach about God protecting his people? How does that teach us here? Well, look at the first part of verse 3. The psalmist says that God will not let your foot be moved. And that phrase, be moved, it's actually interesting. In the Hebrew, it actually illustrates this idea of an object either tottering back and forth um, with the result of falling. And just to kind of give an, an illustration, just think about when it's a very windy day here in Aspera, you're th- everything's shaken up. We had one of those days um, a, couple, a couple weeks ago, and you just look at a tree, it's going back and forth, back and forth. It's tottering back and forth because of the wind. And there's sometimes I've seen because the winds are so violent that the tree actually gets uprooted and it falls on the ground. It's, it's just to show you how, how bad the winds could get up here in the high desert, that's the idea of this idea of be moved, tottering back and forth. We see it with our eyes here with the winds of our own city. To, to add upon that, however, if you look at that same passage, when you look at not letting your foot slip, it also alludes to something else. So you, so you got this idea of, not, of being moved, tottering back and forth. Look, and, and when you look at that phrase, your foot, it's alluding to something else as well. 
It's alluding to two paths, or as the Bible presents it to us, there's two paths that you can live your life. This is something that's key in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's a key thing that we see in that part of the Bible. You got one path, right? You can totter to one path, the way of wisdom. That leads to life. Or you can totter to another path, what the Bible calls the way of folly. That path leads to death. And so you got these two paths that all of humanity can either totter to. Either to the right, which which leads to life, the way of wisdom, obeying God. Or we turn to the left, this way of folly, which leads to death. As Proverbs 1.7 says about this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And yet, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, so which path will you follow, right? The way of wisdom or the way of folly? And so the one who fears God, the one who just doesn't fear that he, that he is a God who is powerful, who has the ability to judge, but really a humble understanding that God is the creator. He is the one I made in his image. I made to worship him. That is what it means to fear God. It is that individual who has come to that realization, he will not totter from the path of life. Why? Not because he is powerful in himself, but because God will prevent him from ultimately slipping due to the high winds of life. And how does God do that particularly? We'll look at the next verse. At the end of verse 3, the psalmist writes, He who keeps you will, will not slumber. He who keeps you will not slumber. And you just think about that illustration, right? Humans, do we need sleep? Yes, unfortunately, right? It'd be so much better if we didn't get so much done. But we were created to sleep. We were created to rest. It's a physiological need. And what that shows us is that we are not these almighty creatures that can do whatever we want as we please. No, it shows that we're limited. We are finite, limited to space and time. And yet, in contrast to God, the creator, beyond his creation, he doesn't sleep. Why? Well, first, he doesn't need it, and yet he doesn't sleep because he's the one who created all things, space and time. He does not need it. It's, it's, he is beyond that. And so with that in mind, then, loved ones, God keeps his people. Why? Because he neither sleeps nor slumbers. And that word for guard there, in that same verse, that word for guard in the Hebrew, it actually has a, a wide range of meaning as well. It can mean guard, protect, observe, preserve, or watch. It actually appears a total of six times throughout Psalm 121 tonight. Again, that's why this is the main subject of the psalm this evening. But ultimately, the idea of God keeping his people is that he causes them to remain in a specific state. He is keeping them in a specific condition. And to help understand this point that the psalmist is trying to develop, look at the next verse. At Psalm 121 verse 4, he continues, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And so God keeps his people. Israel, the church, God keeps his people in general. Why? Because again, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. He is always awake. Truly then, he is your shield in every time of need. If you were to go back to the book of Genesis and to look at a guy named Jacob, this is what God tells to Jacob. Just to give an example of, of how does God, like what does God do because he doesn't sleep. Genesis 28, 15. God tells Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's what God promises to Jacob, to his people Israel. That's what he ultimately promises to all who believe in him. Because God calls a people to himself in Christ. 
both from, both from the Jewish nation of Israel and from people from all the nations around the world. And when he does that, he calls you to his family and he keeps you to be his people in Christ forevermore. And so where God's people cannot do anything to save ourselves because we can't, because we're sinners, yet when God calls a person to be part of his family by faith alone, there is nothing you can do either to lose such a great salvation. As Paul um, famously says at, at the end of um, Romans 8, particularly verses 38 to 39, Paul reminds us by saying these words, loved ones, that, I, that he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. A beautiful promise, a beautiful scripture. And yet, we could read that, and I know for myself, because I'm, I'm weak in the flesh, because I'm a sinner, I'm a man, sometimes we could read a passage like this, and it seems like, but why is there still evil in the world then? Does, is, is God really asleep? I, I know the word says that he doesn't sleep, and he's the one who's ultimately in control, and he is, and yet, it seems like he is asleep. Due to all the evil in the world, it just seems that maybe God is snoring through it all. And the only reason why I'm raising this objection because our culture that we live in, it assumes that the presence of evil and suffering actually disproves the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God in the Bible. And, and this is how people typically think about it, or, or they, they present this, 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 this problem. They say that, well, if God is all-good, and he is, because the Bible says, he would want to defeat evil. If God is all-powerful, he can defeat evil. Yet... The existence of evil must show that God is all good but cannot de defeat evil or he is all powerful but does not want to defeat evil. That's the problem that, that people tend to see regarding the evil that exists in the world now and the Bible presenting God as all good and all powerful. And this is again that, that old philosophical conundrum of the problem of evil. For some people, it's, it, it could be this logical problem that they can't get their minds around but also for other people. And I think this, is, this hits more home to some or, or to more. It's a very intensely personal issue for others, especially when they lose the, the loss of a loved one or they're going through an extremely difficult time in life. Either way, whether it's, it's, it's emotional or philosophical, either way, this problem supposedly, it leads people to conclude, well, then the God of the Bible cannot exist. And yet... I think there is a good response we can give, loved ones, to those who may struggle with this. And maybe if there's anyone here who struggles with this, I think there is a good, good answer from the Bible that can help you wrestle through these things in your mind. And the first question I just want to ask is that, well, when it comes to evil in the first place, when it comes to this idea of suffering, which we all know what it is, how do we even account for all that in the first place? How could we even know that it, that it exists in the first place? That we know it's evil, especially in light of what is good. Because I can tell you that apart from God, apart from the God of the Bible, one does not have the basis to even know what is right, what is wrong, what is evil and suffering in the long run. As the late American pastor Tim Keller once said about this, he says that if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. 
Indeed, you can't not have it both ways. And yet, I know that even a response like that will not comfort the one who is like, but John, I've lost someone who I'm loved. I, love, I, I lost my spouse or I lost my job. I am going through great suffering in the world. I don't, I don't care if, there, if God has a justifiable reason. I am experiencing pain. I am experiencing brokenness. And in response to that, if there's anyone here who struggles with that, there is hope. And not only for you, but for everyone. The one reason that I like to give, and that I'm going to give right now, that we know evil and suffering is not senseless. One, because we know the Bible says it's not, it's not, it's not senseless. But the one reason you can know for sure that evil and suffering is not senseless, because of this. God, as a man, suffered on the cross to defeat evil once and for all. That is how we can know evil and suffering is not senseless. Because Jesus, the God-man, he takes humanity's suffering so seriously that he bears their suffering for sin on the cross himself. As the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, he says, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness it is by his wounds you have been healed. And so if there's anyone here who struggles just with the problem of evil, that how can it be a good God, an all-powerful God, and yet still permits evil to happen in the world? I can tell you this. Yes, he just has a, has a justifiable reason according to his, his, his eternal plan for everything, and yet you know he takes it seriously, that he sees you in your suffering because he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for sinners like you and me, so that if you believe in him by faith alone, repent, and live for Jesus, doesn't mean that life is going to be easier, but it does give you a promised hope that because Christ has overcome sin and death on the cross, that we will also be rise again with him and have everlasting life in him as well. That's the good news that the Christian has, and that is hope to comfort any of you who really wrestles with this. And just to give another observation, and, and I find this one valuable because this isn't, this isn't from a Christian, it's actually from an atheist, and yet what he says is so true because he's just being honest here with the facts. Um, the French philosopher Albert Camus, not this Albert, Albert Camus, he once said that Christ, the God-man, he suffers too, but with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadows, the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end, despair included the agony of death. That's an atheist being honest when he looks upon the gospels, what Jesus has done. Truly then, is not Jesus our Emmanuel? Is he not really God with us? He is because he shares in your sufferings, loved ones, whatever that may be tonight. You may never fully understand why you go through the painful trials in life. I know sometimes I ask that for myself, like, God, why did you allow that? And yet, we can all rest assured that your suffering, my suffering, our suffering in this world is not in vain. Because Christ identifies with us in his suffering on the cross for our sins. And as a result, Christ didn't just die on the cross for sin and was buried. Yet we know the story that he rose again from the grave three days later, overcoming sin and death. That's what the gospel eyewitness accounts tell us. And so the resurrection of Christ then, it not only provides consolation for life in the life to come, but it also provides consolation for the life that we think we never had. 
It's the resurrection of Christ that restores the life that we always wanted, that all the evil, all the suffering that you encounter one day will be undone, loved ones. Why? Because Christ overcame it on the cross and will return to make everything new. Therefore, loved ones, God is your keeper. He will keep you as his people to the very end, despite the evil and the suffering you will experience on a day-to-day basis. The fact that the nation of Israel still exists today alludes to this reality. The fact that the church still stands today around the globe and is expanding and growing alludes to this reality today. And so don't place your trust in this world. Don't trust in the idols of man that sleep. Don't trust in the idols made by, made by man that always sleep. Neither can they fully meet your greatest spiritual need to be restored back to God, but it will only lead to brokenness and pain and ultimately death. As Psalm 127 verse 2 says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives rest, that is God, to his beloved sleep. And so the only way that you and I could find rest and peace in this life and in the life to come is the rest in the one who neither sleeps nor slumbers. Rest in the God who keeps you from tottering from the path leading back to him. Rest in the one who provides for your physical and most significant spiritual need in Jesus. Rest in the one who indeed keeps you to the end. Because only when we do this, loved ones, together by faith, by praying, living life together as the church, that we will be able to, be able to understand the third truth out of the four. The third truth about God protecting his people, and it's this, that God is alert. He is alert to keep his people daily. God is alert to keep his people daily. Look at Psalm 121, verse 5. The psalmist continues, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. And so now we see in this third stanza, or this, the third section of Psalm 121, the psalmist repeats that God is the one who keeps you for the sake of emphasis. He's repeating this because, so we don't easily forget it. And I don't know about you, I'm quick to forget some of God's promises, and so it's always good that we remember these things by reading our Bibles, encouraging one another. And so the fact that he repeats it is actually good for us because, hey, don't forget this. This is really important. However, the emphasis, though, here is also because God keeps you through your day-to-day affairs, in your, in your everyday lives at work, if you're students at school, in your relationships, in your family. God keeps you not just in general, but each moment by moment that you live life under the sun. First, the psalmist says, if you look at the end of verse 5, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. In other words, the psalmist is getting at God is your shelter from the daily anxieties in life. If you feel like you're being bombarded by the pressures of the world, you could run to God as the shadow of your wing. You can run to him and he will give you peace and rest. He is faithful to watch over you. Why? Because remember, he is awake and alert to keep you and protect you. When? We'll look at the next verse. Psalm 121, verse 6. The psalmist continues here that the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And so the psalmist is doing a lot of stuff here in this passage. First, the second line, if you look at that, like, look, look at that passage, you got the first line, the sun shall not strike you by day. The second line, nor the moon by night. What he's doing there is that he is expounding upon that first line. Or if I may say something about Hebrew poetry, he's actually, whatever he's saying in the second line, he is repeated, he's repeating whatever he says in the first line 
for the sake of emphasis so that we can understand what he's really getting at here. And this is known as parallelism. It's, 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 it's the, the idea of, of not the rhyming of sound, but the rhyming of thought, because in our culture, right, when we think of poetry, like, oh, yeah, this, the, it rhymes with sound, like roses are red, ro- um, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you, right? We, we, we recognize poetry because of sound, but in the ancient mind of Jewish culture in the ancient Near East, no, it's like, no, it's not about sound, it's about thought. And that's how they would have organized their thoughts here. And so, so the ancient Israelite here, like, oh, yeah, this is poetry. Why? Because whatever he's saying in the first line is being repeated in the second line. And also something else that he's doing here, not just parallelism, but he's also using another literary device known as a merism. What is a merism? Well, it's using two opposite extremes used to describe the totality of one whole. And if I may give another example of how we might see this today, think of you know, a restaurant that may say, like, we're open day and night. What are they getting at? What's another word for saying that? Open day and night, open 24 hours. That's an example of a merism here. And so when, when the psalmist is saying that the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night, because God is one who keeps you, the sun and the moon refer to God's 24-hour watch of you as his people. There is not an hour. There is not a minute. There is not even one second that God does, is, fails to watch over you as his people. He's doing it all the time, even right now. And so again, that's encouraging because no matter the trials you encounter during the day of your, or, or your insecurities by night, God is your shelter from evil. He is your refuge from the enemy, the devil. He is your mighty fortress from the deceitfulness of sin. He is your shield from death. He is your living hope amidst the suffering. And so, loved ones, do not give in to the daily anxieties of life under the sun. Do not give in to the hopelessness due to life's plentiful pains and sorrow. I know that can be so easy to do. I, I, speak, I speak for myself here at times. And yet, it's in light of that reality that we must remember what the psalmist is teaching us here. That no, hope in God. He is your salvation he is the one thing that matters, and he is the one that keeps you to the very end. And even when we feel that our strength is failing, we can run to God and find rest in him, because it is he who keeps us, who protects us, and it is he who sustains us. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture, it's, 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 it's a promise that we can never forget, loved ones, is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 9-10. He says here in his letter that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was only able to say that because he didn't depend upon his own strength despite all the great things he was able to do for the kingdom of God. No, he was content in his weakness because that humbled him. It reminded him, like, I can't depend upon my strength I must depend upon God. And when I do that each and every single day, crying out to him in prayer like what the psalmist is doing here, then, he, then it is God's grace, his strength, that is just enough for Paul each and every single day. And so, loved ones, God protects us as his people. He is the source of our help. Not only does he keep us as his people, but he watches over us daily, 24-7. And again, all this leads to really the final truth that the psalmist is getting at about God protecting his people. And it's this, that God is able. God is able to keep his people forever. 
So look at the, the final section of, of this psalm. Starting in verse 7 of Psalm 121, the psalmist continues, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And so we began our text by examining the psalmist's question, Where does my help come from? Where can I find help in every time of need? And then he ends at the beginning of the psalm that it's God. God will keep him from all evil in this life. It does not refer to the idea of never experiencing the effects of evil in this fallen world because we all, we all do, unfortunately, day to day. And yet, what the psalmist is getting at is that even in light of that, God will give you just enough strength that he will help you as his people to persevere through it all. To, to, to quote another psalm from, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 23.4, King David famously writes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you, God, are with me. It is your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David wasn't boasting about his own strength or trying to, trying to lift up his bootstraps the American way and doing it his own way. No. When he was in the valley of the shadow of death, the, 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 the low points in life, when life is difficult, when it's hard to bless God, when it's hard to give thanks to God, he says, I will fear no evil. Because you know Why? Because God is the one who comforts me. It's his strength that sustains me. It is his rod. It is his staff, his guidance, his correction. It is the fact that God is in control that I find my comfort in. And I know at the end of the day, he will keep me. He will help me persevere to the very end. And as a result, it's God who keeps our lives as his children. He keeps our souls. In other words, it's God who preserves the salvation of, of us as his people forever. So therefore, no matter what happens in the world or maybe what we do, unfortunately, as sinners, there's nothing we can do again to save ourselves, and yet there's nothing that we can do to lose such a great salvation. Because again, he who began that good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ's return. And if you don't take my words for it, take Jesus' words. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, he says here that all that the Father gives me, that is, everyone that, that the Father has elected in eternity past for salvation, he, get, he gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Why? Because I, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believe in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is why that as we live in this, in this current evil age, loved ones, that we don't look to this world alone. Because if we do that, loved ones, then, we'll, then we will burn out. We'll be so overwhelmed by the daily affairs of life, all the pressures, all the responsibilities that all you have to do on a day-to-day -day life. Like, man, what's the point of it all? And yet, it's when we look to Christ like, no, I have a living hope, not because of what, what I do or what happens in this world, but I have a living hope because of what Christ has done on the cross. And so what I do now matters because what we do here now, loved ones, has eternal significance, eternal consequences, even to the age that is to come. And I, I share all that, right, because this begs the question. As, as Christians, we know how we find eternal life, not by resting on our own strength, not by calling upon our own, need, our own selves to, 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 to live this life. No, there is only one way to find eternal life, and it's in the one who has life in himself. And as the psalmist cries out to God, again, it's this same God that anyone here who doesn't know Jesus could have eternal life because the, because the Bible story begins in this way, that the world wasn't always broken, right? 
God originally created the good because he himself is goodness in itself. That, for, that the entire cosmos, even the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, everything was made good. There was no pain. There was no brokenness. There was no evil. There was no suffering. And yet, what went wrong? Well, humanity, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God. They rebelled against God in the garden, and as a result, sin and death came and affected all of creation after that, right? And that's why we experience, see brokenness on a day-to-day basis. Wars, rumors of war, genocide, people calling good evil and evil good, all these different things. It's because of sin. It's because we're the problem. Everything that's broken in creation, morally, naturally, it's because we have rebelled against God. And yet, the consequence of such rebelling then is, is not just that we die, that's part of it, but for those who, live, who, who, who choose to rebel against God, to, to discredit God, like, you know, Lord, I'm just going to do my own thing, I'm going to follow my heart, forget it. God says, you can do that, but just know that there is a consequence for sinning. And the Bible says that the penalty of such sinning is eternal death in hell. Not because God is cruel, but because God, as the just judge of the universe, must do what is right and send sinners like you and me to hell because we have rebelled against him. We have sinned against him. And yet, the good news of the gospel is, is that God has provided a way to be saved. It's not dependent upon us or anything in this world, but God sent his son Jesus to enter this world by adding humanity to himself, the perfect God-man. He, he grew up, he lived a perfect life, and yet he came to do the will of his father, which was this, to die on the cross so that whoever would believe in him as who he is, that Jesus is the son of God, that he is Lord of all creation, that he is the one who has come to bring a people from all the nations back to himself. This Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, was buried, and rose again three days later from the grave, proving that he was who he said he was, the resurrected Lord. And so if you repent of your sins, all your sins that you've ever done against God is forgiven, not because of anything you have done, but only by your faith in Jesus. And, and how that works, loved ones, or, or anyone here who doesn't believe in the gospel, is that all your sins is placed into Christ's account. He pays it in full on the cross, and in exchange, all the good works that Jesus has done, he gives it into your account as a believer, so that when you believe in Jesus and you repent of your sins, you are saved because Christ pays your sin debt in full, and the Father looks upon you and says, you know what, you are my child, not because of what you have done, not because I was obligated to show you, to show you love, but because of what my son has done for you, and you have received that good news by your faith in Christ alone. And we know we have that living hope, not because the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels tell us so, right? Reliable witnesses, historical witnesses, but ultimately because Christ rose again from the grave. That is what gives us hope, not only in this life amidst evil and suffering, but in the life to come where there will be no evil and suffering, but being reunited with the God we are made to worship, glorifying him, and enjoying him forever. This is what Christ has done on the cross. He, he has come, as it says in Mark 10, 45, not to be served, although he's worthy of it, right? Yet he, he, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is what Christ has done for sinners like you and me. So if there's anyone here or anyone online who has not placed their faith in Jesus, I exhort you, repent of your sins. Believe upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. The gospel is a beautiful message of God's love to us as humanity, sinful humanity. You know that the Bible has answers to your deepest questions like the problem of evil. Believe in this gospel, repent, and follow Jesus. And I can assure you, life might not be easier for you 
this day or the next, but I can assure you you will have a living hope that can never be taken away because it is God who keeps your salvation all the day more until you either die or Christ returns to make all things new. That's the gospel. Good news not only for the Christian, but good news to anyone who believes from all the nations. And so it's within that in mind then that the psalmist then sums up his argument here in the final verse of Psalm 128, or sorry, Psalm 121 verse 8. He finishes here by saying that the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And that phrase, you're going out and you're coming and you're coming in from, just means that God will continually protect you. It's not going to be in seasons that God protects you, then, then he doesn't, then oh, you're on your own, buddy. Then he protects you. No, God continually does this all the time. And if you look at that phrase again in verse 8, from this time forth and forevermore, again, the psalmist is repeating, God will always protect you as his people. And so never live your life, loved ones, as if you depend upon yourself. Whether it's your salvation or your weekly schedule, you must depend upon the one who will continually and consistently keep you. Because it says in Zechariah 4.6, it's not by our might or by our power, but by the Spirit of God, says the Lord of hosts. That is how we have our strength and our sustenance and peace each and every single day. So I've been preaching in Galatians, the same grace that saves us, loved ones, by what Christ has done on the cross. It's that exact same grace that we need each and every single day to walk the Christian life, not to our glory, but for his glory alone. This is what the psalmist realizes. This is his hope. It's only found in the one who keeps him. Therefore, let us do the same, loved ones, as, as we progress through this world um, to the next in glory. And so, with all that in mind, Psalm 121, it teaches us that God protects us as his people forever. And so, where does your help come from? These are questions we got to ask yourself as we go throughout our week. Questions I need to ask myself by way of reminder. Where does our help come from? Where do you turn to find help in every time of need? Christ or this world? And not only is God the one who protects you, but he is the only one that can do so. And so my, my brothers and sisters, run to God. Run to Christ as your shield. doesn't mean that living in this fallen world is going to be easy because it's not. That's why we need his help daily because of that. However, despite that fact, keep your eyes on Christ. Grow in your love for him now so that you may fully know him in heaven one day. Remain faithful and living for him, a life worthy of the gospel. As we make disciples of all the nations in Christ's likeness, we can rest in this promise that Jesus gives us before he ascends to heaven. At the end of the gospel of Matthew, that behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's hang on to that promise because truly he is our shield in every time of need. And so let's pray, loved ones, and then we're going to um, prepare ourselves to take in the Lord's Supper again this Sunday. And so bow our heads with me. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord.